This audio lecture is brought to you by RTS on iTunes U at the virtual campus of Reformed Theological Seminary. To listen to other lectures and to access additional resources, please visit us at itunes.rts.edu. For additional information on how to take distance education courses for credit towards a fully accredited Master of Arts in Religion degree, please visit our website at virtual.rts.edu. Okay, we are, generally speaking, we have looked at some of the key turning points in the early church. Key turning points, by that I mean those crucial doctrinal uh, turning points in the early church. We looked first of all at the canon, and then we got into the question of the Trinity. More specifically, the focus has been on what is the right understanding of the relationship between the Father and the Son. That is the key issue in the Arian controversy. We had already talked a little bit about uh, some earlier attempts in some cases, not very good attempts to understand the relationship between the Father and the Son. Some views that came up that have been discarded as false was dynamic monarchianism, and that is, generally speaking, simply that idea which stresses that Jesus was a mere man on whom the dynamis, the power of God, dwelt. And he was, uh, depending on which person we're talking about, which monarchian, uh, he was elevated to divine status of a sort. Never on a par with God the Father, but elevated to some sort of divine status. Those are monarchians, the early Unitarians. And then there was the second group uh, in fact, I hadn't finished Sibelius, had I? Okay. And then there was the second group who were called the modalistic monarchians. Another term for the modalistic monarchians are the patrapassians. The modalistic monarchians stressed the divinity of Christ and they also held to the unity of the Godhead. What they argued generally was that the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit were simply different names for the same God. The names Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are simply different modes of the one God. And we had looked at the first representative in Praxeus, In fact, he had argued, and this is where the name Patropassian comes from, Praxius had argued that God the Father became man, and God the Father suffered as the Son, and suffered in the name, uh, under the name of the Son. And so Patri refers to the Father, Passio refers to suffering. So Praxius was the first prominent, I mentioned some other persons, Noetus of Smyrna, Zephyrinus, Callistus I, and then perhaps the most original of all, Sibelius, 
I think we had come to Sibelius, and I'll uh, begin with him and finish up. Sibelius came to Rome and, interestingly enough, had been converted to modalism by the bishop of Rome, uh, Callistus. Later, Sibelius was excommunicated by Dionysius, the bishop of Alexandria, 260 A.D. Now, Sibelius is somewhat different from some of the other modalists. The other monarchians, modalistic monarchians, uh, confine themselves to the relationship between the Father and the Son. But Sibelius also includes the Holy Spirit in his understanding. A couple of points, according to Sibelius, his view of God. His fundamental idea is that God is unified without distinction in Himself. Now hang with me for a minute. The fundamental idea is that this one unified God unfolds Himself in three different forms. The one God unfolds Himself. The unified God manifests Himself as Father, unfolds Himself as Father in creation. He further unfolds Himself as the Son in the Incarnation and in redemption. And the unified God further unfolds Himself as the Holy Spirit in regeneration and sanctification. Yeah. The one God unfolds Himself. You know, I was trying to think of an analogy, and, and I forget what, I think it was an Arnold Schwarzenegger movie, was it? I don't know which one, but uh, this, was it the, this guy, he's this form, and he's sort of, Oh, Star Trek. Who's the guy on... Are there other Trekkies in here? Yeah. No, no, not David. It's the newer version. The guy has different forms. Yeah, is that it? Maybe that's a, a broad analogy of, of what we're talking about here. But according to Sibelius, God unfolds Himself. First as the Father in creation, then as the Son in the incarnation, and then as the Holy Spirit in uh, regeneration and sanctification. Let me press on here for a moment. Now here's the other interesting thing about Sibelius. Is that once redemption has been accomplished and God has unfolded Himself in these three forms, these three manifestations cease and they sort of return back to the unity of God. These manifestations are temporary. They are not permanent. And ultimately, once these three unfoldings, these three extensions of the one God complete their purpose, complete their task, then they return back to the divine monad, the abstract one, oneness of God. One at a time. 
So they refer to this abstract monad means one, this abstract unity. Yes, I believe so. One at a time. First the Father, then the Son, and then the Holy Spirit. Uh, it's very abstract. Uh, the personness uh, is manifested only in these unfoldings. It's, it's difficult for Sibelius to talk about or to describe the absolute unity of God as a person. That personality, though, is manifested. So presumably, by implication, there may be some personality in the divine unity. But that's not really seen until God unfolds Himself in these three manifestations. Does God exist other than in the manifestation? Uh, no. These are, these are, God exists in His manifestations. Yes. That's right. There is no father. That's right. It's 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 that's right. It's an unfolding. Now what happens is this makes the father and the son and the holy spirit only temporary. There is no permanent manifestation of the father, no permanent manifestation of the son and no permanent manifestation of the holy spirit. And I just I just made this comment but that is that Christ possessed His personhood only in His historical manifestation. But His person, the Son, Jesus, did not exist before His incarnation. He only existed in the incarnation. Not before and once that unfolding returns back to the unity, the oneness of God then he ceases the person of Jesus. That, uh, that particular manifestation of God ceases. It no longer exists. Only in a historical manifestation. It's kind of creative, but kind of wrong. <laughs> I think. Uh, Sibelius, uh, because he articulated these kinds of ideas, it stimulated all kinds of discussion. And those who had a more orthodox understanding of who God was, you might understand why such ideas would stimulate discussion about the Trinity. And in particular, this relationship between the Father and the Son. Matt. I don't know. Offhand. I don't, I don't know how he would explain that exactly. Yeah. Would Sibelius say that there was the Father early this unified God that existed all the way after the incarnation? Or would he say that... No, the unified God, all the unified God is eternal. Right. And then he, then he manifests himself first as the Father, and then as the Son, and then as the Holy Spirit. And then, and then those manifestations sequentially reveal themselves, and then once the purpose is accomplished, then they return back to the monad. Uh, not specifically. That, that He tends to look at the, the Holy Spirit in terms of the New Testament, a subsequent manifestation after the Son. Just stretching? Okay. Okay, go ahead. In eschatology, 
No, not at all. Not at all. Mm-mm. God was in the Son, manifest Himself in the Son. Uh, no, uh, I'm not. I'm not absolutely sure about that because it had, the question is: Has the goal been accomplished? And obviously, has not been entirely accomplished. What you find is these guys are not always clear about the full implications of their thought. Uh, they are grappling with how do you understand the three-in-one idea. Uh, I'm not sure he worked it out in all in, in all the detail to be able to answer that question. Uh, but it, but the goal, once it's accomplished, the the manifestations cease, and they all and and the last manifestation will then return back to the divine monad, the divine one God. At any rate, you can see why this would stimulate discussion at least. Now, the third century saw no final uh, resolution in this debate. They are still struggling to understand the three-in-one idea. And it was not until the great controversies of the early fourth century that a more developed statement emerges, particularly about the relationship of the Father and the Son. And that brings us then to the Arian controversy. Please bear in mind that I'm mentioning the dynamic monarchianism and the modalism views just to simply give you an idea of how some people are, try are dealing with the three-in-one idea. And this is to, to suggest to you that in the third century there are folks grappling with this very difficult and profound question. And all of this reaches ultimately ahead in the Arian controversy. Now, I think it needs to be said, intro, that the church has always believed in the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And this is clearly reflected in the baptismal formulations. Always, from the earliest times, new converts were baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. But obviously, there was some diversity as to how one understood the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. There were different interpretations of what it meant to be Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so the matter ultimately comes to a focus in the Arian controversy. The roots of the Arian controversy... What am I... Yeah. The roots of the Arian controversy can be traced ultimately to origin. And his theology, still an intro now. I'll admit this is another roots. The Arian controversy can be traced to origin. 
Now, Origins in his theology maintained a tension. He held two ideas in tension. On the one hand, Origen attributed to Christ eternity and a number of other divine attributes. And so, one side of Origen's theology leads one to the idea that the Father and Son are one, that there is an identity of substance between the Father and the Son. There is that side to Origen's thought. But, and this is of, of some concern, on the other side of Origen's theology, there is this idea of the very clear subordination of the Son to the Father. In fact, he even calls the Son a second God. And it's this second point, this subordination of the Son, particularly as articulated by Origen, that becomes the starting point for the Arian controversy. So scholars point to Origen. And one of the reasons they point to Origen is not only was his, were his ideas circulating, but we're talking about the city of Alexandria, which is where Origen uh, had a great deal of influence. And the controversy uh, between Arius and Bishop Alexander all occurs in Alexandria. And Origen and his theology is the real context. A dispute broke out in 318 A.D. 318 A.D. In one corner, there was the Bishop of Alexandria, whose name was Alexander. In the other corner was one of his presbyters, Arius. 318. So we're talking early 4th century. Now, Arius had been educated at Antioch under the distinguished scholar Lucian. L-U-C-I-A-N. Yeah, we're moving down now here to, to Arianism. The intro is just, I'm just getting into it. Uh, and we're moving, I just want to just let you know the two main contenders were Alexander and Arius. Now I want to look at Arianism a little more carefully. The reason I mention Lucian as someone who had an influence on Arius is because Lucian had been a disciple of Paul of Samosata, the dynamic monarchian. So what we see then is a line, a succession, a line that goes from Paul of Samosata through Lucian and to Arius. At any rate, you have Alexander in one corner and Arius in the other. What happened in particular is that Arius accused his bishop of being a Sabalian, a modalist. 
Arius, obviously there was some tension between the two from the outset. But things really got heated up when Arius accused the bishop of being a heretic. Now, Bishop Alexander uh, was not a Sabalian, although at times he had used very strong language in support of the fact that God is one. But it's pretty clear that Arius overstated himself in accusing Alexander of being a heretic, of being a Sabalian. And of course, Alexander was not the sort of person to take an accusation like that lying down. And so the two began to uh, do battle. Uh, and one of the things that came out of all of this is that Alexander discovered that there were some very odd things about what Arius believed. In fact, Alexander becomes very, very concerned about the kinds of things that Arius is articulating. Let me give you some of the key points of the teachings of Arius. First, Arius taught that there is a real difference in essence between the Father and the Son that there is a difference in the essence between the Father and the Son. This will this will become clear as we move on. The second distinctive feature of Arius, he states that Christ was neither God nor man, but something in between. Uh, a lesser deity of sorts. Now what we find in Arius is perhaps an extreme version of a fairly common notion in the early church, namely some idea of the subordination of the Son to the Father. There was an already existing tradition. Even Tertullian, who had come so close to articulating a full-fledged doctrine of the Trinity, still had an element of subordinationism in his thought. And so that is an idea that is still viable in the early church. Arius comes along and he expands upon that idea and he uses stronger language than anyone had used before. So, the Son is subordinate to the Father. Uh, and so, he's, he's not fully God, but neither is He merely man. The third thing that is very distinctive about the teaching of Arius is that he spoke of the Son as a created being. He said the Son was a created being. He was willing to say that Christ created the world, but that at the same time, Christ Himself was created. And this is the most famous statement 
attributed to Arius. It is this. Referring to Christ, Arius said, quote, There was a time when he was not. There was a time when he was not. So Christ is a created being, according to Arius. At some point in the infinitely remote past, the Father created the Son. He is the first of all created beings, says Arius. And even though it occurred way, way before the creation of the world, still there was a time before Christ existed. It's a term that had already been used in theological discussion. We're going to devote some attention to that as we go along tonight. Well, I think you can see that some of the ideas, some of the key ideas of Arius were significant and enough to create some concern uh, for Alexander. Now, one of the odd little things about this debate between Arius and Alexander is that Arius, when he articulated his viewpoint, he articulated it in a little book called The Banquet. And this is a book uh, partly prose, partly poetry. It's very, very popular. It, it, it looks as if that this is something to be sung. Uh, so what we find here, it seems to be very odd that Arius is articulating his theology in a very popular way, in catchy little sing-songy rhymes. Uh, we have only a few fragments, uh, fragments that are preserved by his nemesis, uh, Athanasius. Strangely enough, what we have, what we know about Arius' teachings are in those sing-songy kinds of rhymes and poetry meant to be sung to popular tunes. Perhaps that explains why Arius's views were rather popular. He had a popular way of expressing them, and it caught on uh, for a number of people. So Arius's views gained in popularity. I, I wonder if we want to articulate Reformed theology that we ought to uh, put together uh, a rock group <laughs> of some sort. Uh, I think Brian's done that. I mean, haven't you done that before, Brian? <laughs> anyway, yes. You mean the apostles? Okay, yeah, I'm sure that's right. Mm -hmm. We're going to see some a number of responses. That's not the only response. At any rate, Arius' views gain some popularity, but they also aggravate a number of other people. And that leads us 
to the Council of Alexandria in 321 A.D. Bishop Alexander, having now been engaged in a, a debate with his presbyter, it becomes clear to Alexander that Arius holds some views that are strikingly at odds with what Alexander understands to be orthodoxy. And so what do you do? You call together a group of distinguished bishops and you deal with it. In fact, over a hundred bishops from North Africa attended this council at Alexandria in 321. And it will surprise no one, but Arius was excommunicated and deposed from his position as presbyter in Alexandria. Now one would think that that would solve the problem, but Arius had gathered enough of a following that even though he'd been excommunicated by, over a, by an assembly of a hundred bishops, still he was able to survive. His ideas continued in North Africa, in Alexandria in particular. In fact, matters became quite tense and it looked as if there might even be a schism of sorts with those people supporting Arius separating from those supporting Alexander. It looks as if uh, there might be a schism, particularly in North Africa. And that is when Constantine, the Emperor Constantine, decided to intervene <clears throat> into this matter. It had become such a significant problem that the Emperor felt he needed to get involved and bring about some sort of resolution to the problem. Now, by this time, Constantine had pretty much consolidated his power as the Roman emperor. He had, de he had defeated uh, Licinius twice, remember, in 314 and then again in 324. And now he is the sole emperor of the empire the most powerful individual in the world. And so Constantine, having been converted apparently to Christianity, is a man who wants there to be peace in his empire. And when he sees factions developing uh, to a significant degree, he feels as though he needs to get involved to solve it. This audio lecture is brought to you by RTS on iTunes U at the virtual campus of Reformed Theological Seminary. To listen to other lectures and to access additional resources, please visit us at itunes.rts.edu. For additional information on how to take distance education courses for credit towards a fully accredited Master of Arts in Religion degree, please visit our website at virtual.rts.edu